This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're blazing already at chapter 2. Uh, spent three weeks on chapter 1. We're now in chapter 2, and uh, there's a lot to, lot to learn from this passage, so I'm going to read it, and uh, then pray, and then we will jump right in to uh, seeing what the Lord has for us in this text. John chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful event in which you chose to reveal your glory, as this passage says. And that's our prayer this morning, God. We, we want to see your glory. We want to know your person. We want to understand your character. Lord Jesus, we want to know you. We want to understand this sign which reveals something about you. So we pray that you would open our eyes to the text of Scripture, Scripture. And that you would speak to us clearly today. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, my prayer is that we would be amazed at your scripture, amazed at who you are and what you've done. So, Spirit of God, come and speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we jump into this event, um, I'd like to make a few comments about how do we interpret how do we interpret an event like this? And this will kind of set the stage for the events that are going to come in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. You see, John explains later in his Gospel that he didn't write everything that Jesus did. He selected things to record that Jesus did. So when he gives us an event like this, it is for a purpose. There's a purpose in the recording of this event. It's called a sign. In verse 11, you'll see this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana. 
In the next 10 chapters, there's going to be six more signs that Jesus is going to do. Seven major signs he does in the Gospel of John. Signs that reveal he's the Messiah. At the end of the Gospel, in John 20, John says this, that these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means Christ means Messiah. That you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John in chapter 20 tells us at the end of the story why he's done what he's done. He says, I'm recording these signs so that when you read the sign and see the sign and hear the sign, you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You will believe that he is the Son of God. And that's the exact effect that it has. Look at verse 11 again in the passage we're in. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So he showed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the intended effect of the event has its outworking in the life of the disciples. They see the sign, they see his glory, and they understand something about Jesus. Well, what is a sign? In the Gospel of John, what he calls signs, the other Gospel writers will often call miracles or works of power, they're called sometimes. So John doesn't tend to use the word miracle or work of power. He uses the word sign. A sign is a miraculous event that signifies something. That's why it's called a sign. A sign signifies. It signifies something. The event points beyond itself. So there is the event that's happening, an historical event that's happening kind of on a horizontal level. People are watching, people are encountering, but it points to something vertical. That is, it points to a truth, a reality about Jesus that reveals that he is the Messiah. And so that, that affects how we interpret something like this, because we don't just read it as a we read it as a historical event because it is, but we don't read it as, as sort of merely a narrative story and just camp on all the details and just try to understand what are the details of this story. We don't just do that. We look for a meaning beyond the event because it's a sign pointing to Christ. But on the other hand, we don't just treat it in a way that we're just looking for the meanings, like it's an allegory or something. So we're just trying to draw out this deeper meaning, and we're ignoring the facts of the story. We don't want to do that either. We want to embrace both. We want to understand the facts of the story, the narrative, what's happening, what's Jesus really doing in this event, because he is really doing something that makes a difference at the party. The party can continue because of what he does. So he is doing something that affects people on a horizontal level. But for those who see, and it's only a few in this first sign, for those who see, there is some truth signified beyond the event. And the way we're going to get at that is look through the story and see what are the details that stand out in the story. Then we're going to unpack those details and see what is signified. How does this story point to Jesus as the Messiah. We're going to do that for all the signs, and I won't repeat that whole interpretive process for all the signs, so you'll just have to remember this when we do the other signs. I may repeat some of it, because I'm likely to forget myself. Okay, here we go. Let's look at the story itself. First of all, the setting is Cana. Uh, Verse uh, verse 1 Uh, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
Cana is a very insignificant town. It's not even mentioned in the other Gospels. It's only mentioned in John. It's mentioned twice. It's also the site of his third sign. So John does mention this event. It kind of ties to what's just happened because when he called his disciples, he called Nathaniel. Nathaniel's from Cana. So it ties to the story before, but it's a small, insignificant town, a town about 10 miles from Jesus' hometown, which is Nazareth. So because it's nearby where he grew up, and his mom is invited, and he's invited. It it may be the wedding of a friend, a close friend. It may be the wedding of a family member. We don't really know. But it's it's sort of in this small, uh, insignificant, kind of non-mentioned area town of the Bible. And right off the bat, we see what kind of a savior Jesus is. I mean, the first chapter describes Jesus as God come in the flesh, this glorious savior who brings the light. He is the life. And the next thing we know, he's in some unspectacular town. Jesus is among the common folks. When God comes to earth, he's very comfortable with the common folks. He's also, maybe surprisingly, based on how you view Jesus, he's also uh, comfortable at a party. He's at parties numbers of times. Matter of fact, he gets uh, unfair uh, judgments hurled at him later in his ministry because of the kind of people he hangs around with and the kind of parties he goes to at times. But he's at a party. Now, it's a wedding, but it's an extended party is what this wedding is. He's there with his mom. He's there with his disciples. At this point, he probably only has five disciples. They're the ones that he called in chapter 1. Um, He has Andrew, an unnamed disciple, which may have been John. He has Andrew's brother, Peter. So that's three. Andrew, unnamed disciple, Peter. And then he has Philip, and Philip went and got Nathaniel. So there's five at least in chapter one, and they are all invited to the wedding. And the wedding is, it is a lifetime event. Now, I know in our culture uh, girls, anyway, dream about their wedding from the, from the youngest age. And the wedding is a super special day, and I don't want to take away anything from an American wedding because they're all special. But these were special. Because in this culture, the wedding celebration lasted for about a week. For about a week. So there was a wedding and followed by a, about a week celebration. And so for people who lived, compared to us, in poverty... For people who lived without the conveniences we do, life was very, very difficult. So your wedding was an event that even the guys probably looked forward to from a young age, you know. I mean, this was a big deal. They would put crowns on the bride and groom, and they were treated like kings and queens, a king and queen for a week as everyone celebrated their wedding together, their marriage together. So it's a significant event. It would be the event of your lifetime. In, in this kind of environment because of the, the, the attention, the special nature of it, the ongoing um, celebration that happens. So when Mary makes this report, Mary the mother of Jesus, when she makes this report in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This announcement is serious. It's serious because it's not like they're just going to send somebody down to the store to replenish uh, the supply. They've run out, 
And this is a, a significant faux pas. It's a social faux pas. Now, I couldn't believe this. I read more than one person that said this. If I'd read one, I wouldn't have believed it. But I read more than one person this week that said, commentators, that said, actually, there was legal liability here. That at the wedding, if you ran out of supplies, you could be subject to suit sometimes. So, I mean, nowadays, it's like, well, first come, first serve. You should be thankful we're serving you anything. But uh, hopefully that's not the attitude. But you know what I'm saying. Here, there's legal obligations. So, there's this major, major problem. The bridegroom is about, because the groom was responsible uh, for all of this at this wedding, for the celebration. So the groom is about to experience significant embarrassment in sort of a shame-based culture. By that, I mean a culture that's based on respect and customs and doing the right sort of thing. So he's about to experience public shame, embarrassment. He's about to have his bride who said, I've dreamed of this my whole life. And he, yeah, me too. They're about to get rid of the crowns. The party is about to come crashing down. The greatest week of their lives is, is on the verge of caving, almost like a Super Bowl in Dallas or something. So much expectation, but the whole thing is about to cave in on all those who are expecting such a great celebration. And so Mary brings this to Jesus's attention. They have no wine. They have no wine. Now, maybe Mary was a relative. Maybe she was serving and helping out with the serving or the catering of the event. But whatever, she knows this and she brings it to Jesus's attention. And this is what Jesus says to her. Verse four, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, that's a bit hard to interpret. First of all, he calls his mom woman. Uh, and uh, normally in our culture, if you say that, uh, it's usually with sort of a draw, woman, you know, and uh, <laughs> some guy sitting out on the porch who needs a bath yelling, you know. So uh, what that conjures up in our lingo is not what's happening with Jesus at all. So we need to get out of our culture and think about biblical times. It, it, it may, it's probably not the most endearing uh, term to use, but it's certainly not rude. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same word he uses for his mom when he's caring for her at her greatest hour. When Jesus is on the cross in, in the Gospel of John, this is in chapter, um, oh, I don't remember, chapter, well, it's in chapter, it's in chapter 19. When Jesus is on the cross, he he looks down and sees his mom there, and John is there, and this is what he says to his mom. He says to her, uh, woman, behold your son. Woman, behold your son. So he is pointing to his uh, there caring for her and using this same language. So it's not rude language, um, but he's not just jumping to answer her request either. Um, he says to her, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So he's not saying not my problem. That, that's not what he's saying, but he is saying the timing on this is, is not good. What he is saying is, he, he's saying it's premature. It's too soon for me to act. It's not my hour. It's too soon for me to act in a way that will reveal my glory. 
His hour usually refers to his death, but here it probably refers to the beginning of his ministry. His glory is seen most clearly in the cross, but he starts giving glimpses of his glory right here. It says the disciples saw his glory from this sign. So what he's probably saying to his mom here is he's saying, I, I can't do anything about this in essence. I'm not going to do anything about this because there's a need. In other words, he's not going to allow his mom's request. As we look later in the Gospels, he's not going to allow his disciples' requests. He's not going to allow the religious leaders' requests. He's not going to allow anyone's requests or needs to be in a demand on him that will cause God to act in a certain way that doesn't serve the Father's timing. So my hour has not come. It's not time for me to reveal my glory by doing something to solve this problem is probably what he is communicating. He's on his heavenly father's terms. And Mary responds with faith because look what she says. His mother, verse four, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus proceeds to meet the need. But if you notice notice in the story, he does it in a semi-private fashion. He doesn't do this in front of everyone there. I mean, no one knows. The master of ceremonies doesn't know. Where did this wine come from, he says. He doesn't know. It says the servants know. And his disciples know and believe. But it's it's uh, it's not a miracle that is broadly seen in front of the crowds or something like that. So he does do something, but he does it in sort of a private manner. Okay, what does he do? Well, look at verse 6. There were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So there's these large stone jars at the wedding party. And uh, these jars each carry about 20 to 30 gallons. So say 120 to 180 gallons, up to 180 gallons for water. And they're, they're not just holding tanks for water. He says they are uh, stone jars for water for the Jewish rites of purification. The Jewish rites of purification. So Jews had ways that they had to do certain things to clean, clean themselves uh, or to clean utensils. It, it represented to them the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. So there's many things you couldn't do or it would make you unclean. And so they are, you would wash your hands ceremonially. The utensils that were used may have been washed ceremonially. But there are these, these jars that hold the water and, um, for the cleansing uh, to make the people and the utensils and the whole event clean before God. So what he does is he says, go draw water and fill these stone jars up to the brim. So he has that filled with water and then... After they do that, he has them take a sampling of what they think is water in the jars to the master of ceremonies, to the, uh, they call him the master of the feast. He would have been the one who was in charge of distributing the wine and the food and stuff. He probably acted like an MC as well, um, uh, not a DJ MC, like a master of ceremonies. He's probably like the master of ceremonies kind of a guy. Maybe he's a DJ too. I don't know. Just making sure everybody has a good time. He's kind of in charge and doing it all. So when he tastes this, what he says is that he is shocked. He's surprised by this drink. Verse 10, he says to them, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have 
drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. He is shocked because the wine has run out, so we're, we're somewhere, in, you know, I'm sure they would have had a decent supply. We're a few days into the celebration probably, um, and they've run out, and then Jesus makes this high-quality um, wine, and he tastes this and realizes this is surprising. Normally people serve the cheap stuff first. They don't have to buy as much good stuff. Then later in the week, later in the party, they serve that. People may not be as discerning at that point, and they serve this other wine. So that's typically how people do it to get by with it, to do a party on a budget. But not you. You've done it totally different. So there is this miracle that Jesus does. It's a miracle of quantity, up to 180 gallons of wine. It's a miracle of quality. The guy who's the expert wine taster guy here, master of the feast, is shocked. I have never heard of this. He brings the bridegroom. What have you done? This is amazing. The groom and his family are protected from embarrassment, from shame. The, the celebration can continue. And then John explains the event. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This, the first of his signs, he did in Cana. So he explains to us that this is a sign that Jesus has done to reveal his glory, to the signs point out that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's done this to teach us that Jesus is the Messiah, not merely to meet a catering deficiency, though it does that, but he's doing something else as well. What about this passage teaches us that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, let's look at some of the details of the story. What's the major detail of the story, apart from the fact that it's a, it's a wedding celebration, which we'll look at in a second. That's a major detail. But what other major detail happens here? He, he does a miracle, but he doesn't just do any miracle. He produces wine. Wine is central to the story. The miraculous provision of wine is at the heart of the event. And in the Bible... Bible says a lot about wine. I'm, I'm tempted to develop this out. I'll do a teaching on this sometime, but I just can't, I just for the sake of time, and it's not the point of the story. The Bible says a lot about wine. There's warnings about wine in the scripture, and then there's also generally a celebration of wine in the scripture. So you get both uh, celebration and warnings at different points as well, to be sure. Drunkenness is always forbidden in the scripture, but, but wine is celebrated in a number of different ways. As a matter of fact, during Jesus' time, this isn't in the Bible, but Jewish rabbis had a saying which went, without wine, there is no joy. So there was a, a tying of wine and joy together. In the Bible, wine signifies joy. In the Bible, wine signifies uh, abundance. In the, wine, in the Bible, wine signifies blessing. It even signifies blessing. But first of all, it signifies generally in the Old Testament joy. Look at Psalm 104. We'll project this for you. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. This is what the psalmist says. 
You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So God is the one who causes grass to grow, the livestock. God causes plants to grow. So God is the God who gives produce. And what is the benefit of that produce? Well, oil to make your face shine. Uh, bread is a benefit to strengthen man's heart. And wine, which gladdens the heart of man. Wine tied here as a provision from God which gladdens man's heart. Wine is also talked about in the Old Testament as a sign of blessing, especially when it's spoken of in abundance. So, And this is an abundance. Up to 180 gallons of wine is a lot, especially when it's a high-quality wine. So the, the idea of abundance of wine is in this story. We see this in the Old Testament. Consider this proverb from Proverbs 3. This is what Proverbs 3 says. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, what's he saying? Wine here represents tremendous blessing. What he's saying is honor the Lord with your wealth, honor the Lord with your first fruits, and you'll be blessed, is what he's saying. What does blessing look like? What does the blessed life look like in this context right here? What he says is the blessed life will, uh, life will look like this. Barns that are filled and vats that are bursting. So the containers for the wine can't even hold it. It's seeping out the sides. It's pouring over the top. What does that mean? It means that, that God is blessing a people in that way. So the main sort of, the, the sort of substance of the miracle is wine. And wine in the Bible, in the Old Testament, not exclusively, but generally represents joy, abundance, uh, provision, blessing. But the production of the wine here isn't just sort of a general joy and abundance. The joy and abundance of this wine is, is in a setting of a feast, and that's important too. So the wine is the miracle but the context is important, too. It's a wedding celebration. It's a feast. It's a, it's a great feast. It's a great time of celebration. And in the Old Testament, the Messiah's coming is often spoken of or sometimes spoken of with the anticipation of a great feast. The great feast represents the new age, the age of the Messiah's coming, the day the kingdom of God comes to earth. The Messiah rules and reigns. That's the great hope. Now, there's also the great hope that one day there is an eternal celebration. The wedding feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb, we read of in, in Revelation. So there's the ultimate sense in which feasting and celebrating represents God's people with him in eternity. But there's another sense in which when God's salvation comes to his people, it's like a huge feast. It's like a celebration, and that's the anticipation in the Old Testament. God will bring salvation. Messiah will come. Wine will flow. Food will be there. There will be a, a feast of the kingdom of God, sort of metaphorically speaking. You get this in Isaiah 25. Look at this passage, which is a wonderful background passage for Jesus' first miracle here. Look what the anticipation of Isaiah 25 is. 
This is a future prophecy. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Catch that. When the Messiah, when salvation ultimately comes, it'll be for the nations and it'll be like a feast with a lot of food and well-aged wine. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Now listen to this. It will be said on that day. What day? The day of the feast, the day of the coming of Messiah, the day of the kingdom. It will be said on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This verse is a key setting for what's happening here. What is the disciples' conclusion? It says that they believe. Let's look at the last slide again. The disciples believe. He manifests his glory and they believe. It's almost as if the disciples could be uttering these words from Isaiah. Behold, this is our God. The one who has made the water into wine. We've waited for him, the expected Messiah, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice. What is the environment of gladness and rejoicing? It's this feast on the mountain that he speaks of. It's the well-aged wine. It's the rich foods. It is the nations having the blinders open on their eyes. It is, what did this text also say? It is the Lord swallowing up death forever. The people of Israel longed for a day when God would come in salvation. When the nations would be reached. When death would be brought to an end. When we would say, this is our God, we've been waiting for him. Pour the wine, bring the food. And what's happening here is, the Messiah has come. The feast is beginning. Only a few people see it right now. But the Messiah's feast is beginning. The wine is flowing. God is on the move. The nations will see. Death will be swallowed up. This is the one we've waited for. And and it's just beginning now. One day it will be complete as we see him face to face at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But Jesus, it's a, the, the, the production of abundant production of wine is, is tied to the joy of the Messiah's come, the celebration of the Messiah. He begins his ministry saying, God has come. And the sign points beyond the immediate need. I mean, there is an immediate need. Jesus makes up for the deficiencies Of the bridegroom. By providing the wine that he didn't buy enough of. Jesus provides for the deficiencies of the bridegroom. But notice this in the story. And this is more important. Jesus not only makes up for the bridegroom. Jesus makes up 
for the deficiencies of the old covenant. Jesus makes up for the deficiencies of the old covenant. The details of this story are not accidental. The story could have read like this. There were six big jars there. Huge jars. 30-gallon jars. And they poured water in it and Jesus turned it to wine. That's not what the text says. The text gives us an important detail. Verse 6. There were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. A vital detail in the story that matter, that, that points to the sign. Not only the Old Testament background of wine, Messiah, feast, kingdom, all of these things. But, but there's this detail that here is the water. Here are the jars that God has prescribed be used so that his people can wash and be clean. And Jesus takes that water and turns that into wine. You see, in this story, Jesus is the wine that replaces the Jewish ceremonial law. He is the wine that fulfills, and actually in this case, replaces the water of the Jewish ceremonial law. He transforms it. He fulfills it. He changes it. The Jewish purification laws, uh, the ceremonial laws, were never meant to be an end in themselves. Now, I'm not talking about what sometimes theologians call the moral law. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the ceremonies that went along with sacrifices, ceremonies that went along with the temple, ceremonies that went along with what you could wear and not wear, what you could eat and not eat, and here, ceremonies that went along with cleansing. These were never meant to be an end in themselves. They were pointing forward. That they, they were statements about the holiness of God and our sinfulness and our need to be clean before a holy God. But they were never an end in themselves. They pointed forward to the coming Messiah. And now Jesus has come and he's taken the ceremonial water and he's changed it and made it wine. And this powerful statement that the, that the feast the master of ceremonies at the feast makes, you've kept the good wine till now. Jesus is the superior wine. The, the good wine has been saved for this time. Jesus is superior. How is Jesus superior? Well, he's superior in a number of ways. One is the purification water could never really make a person clean. Not permanently clean because you had to wash again. And you had to wash again. And you had to be declared clean again. And you got dirty and you had to be cleaned again. And so at the next wedding, the same purification jars would show up. I guess that was part of the catering gig. We've got to have the jars here to clean everyone's hands or the utensils or whatever it was used for. So you're never away from that. You're temporarily, so to speak, determined and declared clean. But Jesus comes and now that Messiah has come, he will make the purification jars completely obsolete. No one had to be cleansed with a jar out there in the lobby filled with water on your way in. Why? Because Jesus is the one who comes as God in the flesh. He lives a perfect life. He never, never, though he washed his hands, he never needed to actually because he had no sin. Jesus was perfect. And yet, 
he was crucified and he died like one who was a sinner, though he wasn't. And our sins were placed on him. All of our uncleanness was placed on Jesus Christ. And God the Father poured out his judgment once and for all for our uncleanness, our sin. He poured out his wrath, his condemnation, his hatred, his holy hatred over sin. He poured that out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus endured the wrath of God for our uncleanness. And then he was buried and raised to new life on the third day, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of death, crushing the power of the enemy. So now, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who turns from their sins and believes in Jesus as the Savior, God declares over us, clean, forever, clean. No need for ritual washing. No need for certain practices that declare separation. We are clean forever because of the blood of Christ. He has made provision once And for all, Hebrews says, and now has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Do you see that what's happening here is as as the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ comes, the old ritual is turning into reality. It all pointed to Jesus Christ. And here he is. That's why there's reason for celebration on the mountain. That's why... Food is served. That's why there's laughter and dancing and wine flowing and abundance and provision. Because the fulfillment of the ceremonial law is standing there in their midst. It's astonishing. The purification jar, the water in the purification jars can be done away with. Because John the Baptist said in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. There's no need to kill an animal. For the Son of God, the Lamb of God has come to forgive our sins. The the wine of the gospel replaces the water of the ceremonial law. The wine of the Savior, superior in every way the new covenant is over the old covenant. He's superior also because the purification rites not only failed to cleanse people permanently, but they failed to change people as well. You can wash your hands, you can wash the utensils, but that doesn't change a heart. That doesn't change you from the inside. And yet John 1, it says, Jesus in him was life. No life was the light of men. Jesus comes bringing life. Jesus comes bringing a covenant that is internal. Jesus comes bringing a new birth by the Spirit so that the Spirit of God creates new life in us. And the Spirit of God dwells in us and changes us internally. The Christian has a new heart. See, what's greater about Jesus' coming It's not just like part B of the religious plan. He makes all things new. Because he creates what wasn't there. He makes a dead heart, a dead soul spiritually come to life. The purification water could never do that. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection and through the spirit poured out later, he does that. And now he's creating new affections and new desires in us. He's creating a love for God, 
a heart for God, a heart that desires the holiness of God, a heart that fears God from the inside because of the Spirit of God at work in us, creating a love and a fear from God. Ceremonial washing pointed to a need. Pointed, reminded, it was the law that reminded us of our need to be cleansed. But it can never cleanse the heart. It just pointed forward to the Messiah who would come and cleanse the heart. And now he's here. And he's letting the few know, and all of us know, that the time has begun. Messiah has arrived. The kingdom is beginning to advance. And the first sign is that wine is present. Joy, the messianic feast, the celebration that the old is being done away with and ritual is turning to reality. Jesus, who is present. The water of ceremonial washing is changed into the wine of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who brings forgiveness and new life through the gospel. It's a sign so that we'd see who he is and what he's done. It's a sign so that we'd believe. Listen, if you've never believed, I urge you to believe. I urge you to believe. We're glad that you're here. I hope we'll all be inviting folks who are investigating. We're going to be spending the majority of this year looking at Jesus in the Gospel of John. Maybe the whole year. I haven't worked it out yet, but... A chunk of this year, we're looking at Jesus every week. This is a perfect opportunity to see who he is and what he's done. Let his claims stand on their own and let his power bring new life. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you've never really believed, if you're a child of a believer, if you're a kid in the room, a young person, a college student, and you've never really believed, I just urge you to turn to Christ and believe. This story, if it communicates anything, it is that you cannot clean up yourself. You cannot purify yourself. You must be pure to be acceptable to God, but you cannot purify yourself. And so what does Jesus do in this story? They can do nothing for themselves, and he provides. It's the same way with our salvation. See, Jesus is going to point to wine later in his ministry as well. The night before he's betrayed, the night he's betrayed, the night before he dies, as they share the Last Supper, and he shares wine with his followers, and he says, This wine is my blood. It represents his death. Jesus came to give himself to die for us and do what we could never do for ourselves. You cannot get good enough, you cannot get religious enough, you cannot be moral enough. It does not matter what your background and your pedigree is. It does not matter how little or how much you know of the Bible. What matters is that you know Jesus is the one who's cleansing you from your sins and making you new on the inside and by, through your faith in him, declaring you clean. The way you're clean before holy God is to be declared clean by the one who sheds his blood for us. And if you are a believer here today, then this account is glorious. I mean, I've wrestled a lot this week. How do you apply this? Uh, Wine is joy. Jesus wants you joyful. We close by singing, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. That wasn't a serious idea, but it did occur to me. Um, I think the response to a passage like this is the response that the disciples had, that they, he manifested his glory and they believed. 
not believing for the first time, us here today, but we need to freshly believe what does it mean that Christ does everything to make you right with God? What does it mean that he provides the way that you can't make yourself pure, ceremonially clean, you can't purify yourself, but you're standing right with God based on what he has done? Listen, when that grips your soul, the result will be the passages we read in the Old Testament. Joy comes. Joy is the fruit of realizing that we are right with God solely by grace, purely by the work of Jesus. It happens outside of us and is credited to us. That is joy. That is relief. That is celebration. It's a celebration and a joy that cannot be matched by any other experience in this life. The joy that comes from a clean conscience because he's declared us clean. The joy that comes by having new life inside of us in Jesus Christ and believing, trusting, relying on who he is and what he's done for us and in us and through us. That is celebration and there is some sense Life is difficult. The Bible is filled with statements about enduring suffering, enduring persecution, enduring difficulty, experiencing loss, grieving. The Bible is filled with the truths that life is very hard. Matter of fact, Jesus said at one point, each day has enough trouble of its own. Just don't get, get bothered by worrying about tomorrow. There's enough today on your plate. That's what he says, basically. But th this is also true. That in all of the difficulties of life, there really is, at the foundational level, an ongoing feast. An ongoing celebration. An ongoing bedrock joy that is to be in our soul. Because our sins are forgiven. Because we have a certain hope of eternity. Because we live confident that we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we will see Jesus face to face. That he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That there will be a day when there's no sorrow, no crying, no suffering, no pain, no sin. That our sins are forgiven now and that that certain eternity awaits us. Those truths that Jesus has come and he's taken the old and made it new. He's made all things new. That is to produce in us a sustaining, enduring, empowering joy. Not a joy that's giddy all the time, but a joy that is at rest, a joy that is at peace, a joy that is feasting and celebrating on the truths of the Scripture. That is encountering the Savior and saying all over again like this morning, I believe. The Messiah has come. The feast has begun. The wine is flowing. The joy of the Savior is present. And some of us don't experience that the way God wants us to. Because we... Because at times we're distant from the Savior who brings that joy. There's a joy in him that even sustains in the midst of grief. And I've counseled people who are in the midst. I've been in the midst of grief. You're in the midst of grief who say, this makes no sense. I cannot explain it. I, I, I cannot. But in the midst of my great sorrow, I'm crying. I've got the Kleenex. But there is in my soul, there's just this sense of it's well with my soul. There's a sustaining grace, an enduring joy, 
a lasting hope by the Spirit of God that has come to me in my darkest night. So whether you're at the top of the world or whether you're at the bottom of the heap, know this, the Messiah has come. The feast and the celebration have begun. They're only in part right now. They will be in full. The old way, the old way is done away with and the reality has come so that your sins are forgiven once and for all. Put your head on the pillow tonight and rest well for your sins are forgiven once and for all. The glory of Jesus emanates through this story because he reveals the Savior has come, the Christ has come, and he has made all things new. And that's a lot greater than water into wine. That's dead hearts to life. That's a ceremonial law abolished and the gospel alive in our midst. Let's pray. Oh God, you've been so good to us. And my heart goes out this morning to folks in the room who aren't tasting joy. Even as they heard some of the descriptions, even as they heard the passage, they just were saying to themselves, that's not me. And Lord, there are people facing dire circumstances. There are people facing broken hearts. And my prayer this morning is that the joy of the Lord would be the strength of those who suffer today. I pray that the joy of the Lord would be the strength of those who are just having a so-so life right now, circumstantially. And I pray the joy of the Lord would be the strength for those who are tasting great blessing. God, guard those in our midst that they not attach their heart to the blessing, but they attach their heart to the joy that's in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the blessing. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.